self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Perhaps you've never heard these words before, which in that case you are A, not from this country, B, living under a rock, or C, you just didn't go to a school where they taught these things. These are words, obviously, from the, uh, the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, uh, which were formally approved uh, by the second, the second, excuse me, Second Continental Congress on the fourth day of July, 1776, 245 years ago today. Now, remember, the resolution for independence was actually approved on the 2nd of July. That's for you history buffs, and I don't see Dave Parsons, but that was for him. We hold these truths to be self-evident. According to our founders, it's evident that all men are created equal and that they were endowed by the Creator, which naturally means, according to some of the greatest minds in our country, it's evident that there is a creator. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. That creator, our God, makes himself evident to us through his creation. In Romans 1.20, he says this, For since, Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from his workmanship, so that men are without excuse. So we can agree with our founding fathers that God exists. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's move on from there. The Declaration of Independence was a written proclamation that provided the reasons why the 13 colonies, already at war with uh, Britain for over a year, regarded themselves as 13 sovereign states and no longer under British rule. With the Declaration, the colonies took the collective first step towards the founding of the United States of America. They claim freedom. The document, this document and others that would follow uh, began the great experiment where people of the country would rule through representatives. Now there's, today there are thousands and thousands of people who come to the United States in hopes of becoming a citizen here, a citizen of this country. And we also have people here that are on visas, people that are tourists, There are also asylum seekers, like Patrick from Uganda and his family, because they're trying to escape political persecution. And, of course, there's others that are here illegally. And we don't blame them for being here or wanting to be here. I mean, we really don't, because this is one of the most free countries in the world. And I know immigration has become a political hot potato. And there's always these, you know, this particularly the troubles that are, southern border, and I know I've heard it from somebody high in administration that said that before we can do anything about our southern border, we need to find out why these people want to come. I personally think that's also self-evident. People are hungry for freedom. 
And they oppression, starvation, disease, civil war, where they can live by the fruits of their labor and where they can be free, a place where they can call home or citizenship. In Ephesians chapter 2, we discover that there is truly a place where hostility can end, where peace can be found, and where we once were enemies, strangers and aliens, can become citizens. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written around 62 AD, and he was under home arrest in Rome at the time. And he's writing to these Gentiles of Ephesus, reminding them that they were once cut off from God, aliens to Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope in God in the world. That's a scary place to be, having absolutely no hope. But that's exactly where we are, right? Outside of Jesus, without hope. In the second chapter, outlines implicitly our condition before becoming citizens of the household of God. How a loving God, rich in mercy, displayed his love for us while we were still his enemy. That God saved us entirely through grace. And Jesus as the cornerstone of the foundation, the church, built upon the apostles and the prophets, and how we're all joined together. The whole structure grows into the holy temple of the Lord. This chapter, or this sermon, could be titled, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a Christian's Declaration for Dependence. Let me read to you chapter 2, and then we'll go through it. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together in the dwelling place for the God, excuse me, in the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, again, we come to you. Lord, I ask now, Lord, that the words that I say in the meditation of a heart glorify and honor you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of us that are past middle age start to think beyond their own life about this country and more about what the legacy will be, what we're going to leave for our children, our grandchildren. We listen to the news and we fear that this country might be fundamentally changing, maybe not for the good. And then with the advent of social media, you know, we have become a more divided people. We boldly express ourselves and we openly criticize those people who are not like-minded. We're seeing more and more disunity in our country and we deal with things Today, that past generations would have thought absurd. I won't mention them. I think you can think of what might come to mind. Do we worry that the country might become fundamentally changed by the fringe parts of our society? Where our children, grandchildren enjoy the relative safety and freedoms you know, that we've enjoyed? Or we, like ancient Rome, crumble from within? Because we care about the future of the country... And the legacy that we leave for the next generation, we raise our voices, we vote our conscience, we even go on social media and plast our outrage on Facebook and Twitter. But what about our eternal citizenship? Do we think enough about whether our loved ones, neighbors, co-workers will one day enjoy that citizenship? Our citizenship, our life here is but a whisper. It's like a puff of smoke. It's like the fringe on the rope of eternity that could wrap around the world millions and millions of times and beyond. But too often, that's where we place our hopes and we put our energy. Where are we without our citizenship in heaven through Christ? Let's look at this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Okay, I guess we're told right away where we are. We're dead. Outside of Christ, we're dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in our passions and flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Ever watch those zombie movies or TV shows like The Walking Dead? See, zombies are dead. They just don't know they're dead. So they walk around and creating habit all wherever they go. That's their nature. What's our nature? Paul tells us that we are, by nature, children of wrath, like all mankind. So outside of Christ, we're like walking zombies full of wrath. In light of this revelation that we're dead, 
it makes total sense that salvation must come completely from God. Because, see, the dead can't help themselves. We can't do anything. We're unable to do it, and we're without hope. And the evil one, Satan, as Paul talks, is the prince because of the power he has. He's called the prince of the air because the whole earth, including the first heaven, which is our atmosphere, is his domain, at least for now. In 1 John 5.19, we read, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, unsaved people think they're free. But we're all servants. We can, by choice, choose to be servants of God and be truly free. Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewithin Christ had made us free, and not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Or we can be servants of the prince of darkness. In steps a loving, benevolent dictator in verse 4. Now, the 18th century French Enlightenment writer, who's also a historian and philosopher, Voltaire, he stated that the best form of government is a benevolent dictatorship. And while he was an open critic to Christianity, especially the Roman Catholic Church, he had this one right. Because in the kingdom of God, we have exactly that, a benevolent Dictator. God doesn't put truths up for a vote. He doesn't look to men to argue the validity of his edicts or his commands. And he doesn't need a consensus before he acts. And no majority is going to overrule him. But his words are always true. His actions and commands are always in our best interest. And he loves us to the degree that he sent his only begotten son to die for us. A representative democracy like we have in the United States is probably the best government because of human failings. But it pales in comparison to the government of the kingdom of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. That is a benevolent dictator. One who has all the power. Yet he loves mankind to the degree that he has compassion on us, even when we are his enemy. He brings us to life with the resurrection of his son and provides the path to citizenship in the kingdom of God. And the beautiful part, which seems unfathomable, is that we're saved by grace and not of our own merit. And verses six, 6 to 9. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the God not only providing the gift of life through Christ Jesus but also provides the faith by which you need to believe in him. No merit medal. And the participation medal, faith, he gives you that too. So Paul says, no bragging. If you've answered the call of Jesus Christ and believed him and accepted him, you were raised up from the dead at that very moment. And now you're alive and seated with him in heaven. He said, I mean, if you think about that, do we really think about that statement and think about us being raised up with Christ? I mean, that's really powerful if we think about it. How many people here have seen the movie Jesus of Nazareth? 
It's an old movie. Some of you, you have to see this. All right. That scene where he, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead is one of my favorite scenes. And here's Jesus. He comes, his, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus' uh, brother, or sister, excuse me, are grief-stricken. And here Jesus steps in, he, in front of the tomb and he tells them to roll away the stone. And then he prays to God and he commands Lazarus to come out. And he does. We were just as dead as Lazarus. But like zombies, we didn't know it. Our new birth, like Paul, drops the scales from our eyes and we're able to see what our condition was outside of Christ. We can't truly fathom a God that would love us that much that we ask nothing of us except faith, which also he gave us, in exchange for eternal life bestowed upon us, his one-time enemy. Eternal life for us, as we know, came with a price, and it came with a costly one, spilt blood of Jesus Christ. He paid the price that we couldn't. And this benevolent, loving dictator, whose grace is beyond measure, provided a way for us to spend eternity with him and become heirs of God. As the Bible said, not just heirs, but joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Okay, you can just say, wow, or you can say, amen. Oh, thank you. Amen, yes. I mean, that's a big thing, right? We have no room to boast of our status as citizens in heaven. We received, as it says, we received the gift is not of our doing. Let's pick up in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Verse 10 is not a contradiction of verses 8 and 9, but a reason for our creation. Many of us look at ourselves in a negative light. We might say, hey, our physical appearance or our abilities, and we're told as a child. But, you know, as a child of God, we're told that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We've heard the phrase, and it's true, you know, God doesn't make junk. You are his workmanship, and he has worked for you by faith and power provided by him that we can walk in. So we're not saved by our good works through faith. We become a child of God, and the purpose of the work has been already prepared for us. And whatever good works may be, they are the consequences, not the cause of salvation. Starting in verse 11, we see how we are united in one Christ, and that outside of him, that we are in a state of hopelessness. Paul is speaking to the Gentiles here, and he reminds these believers how they were once outside of God. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, but what is called the circumcision, meaning the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If we encounter somebody that's feeling hopeless and we try to comfort them, we try to show them the positive things in their life. But as a Christian speaking to a non-believer, we can't. And we're going to be doing them a disservice if we point to the world for comfort. We can all try to make our lives better. You know, we can get in better physical shape. We can you know, do 
whether it be exercises or we can read self-help books and try to do that. Paul explains to these Gentiles that, these Gentiles, that and to you and me, that the things of this world will leave you completely hopeless. Nothing is here as eternal. Outside of Jesus, we're hopeless. Why do you suppose Paul is asking these Christians in Ephesus to remember their past and remember their past life outside of Christ? Paul wanted to remind them that they are now unified with the Jews who also accepted Christ. You suppose we need to be reminded about how we should be in unity with Christ? Examine ourselves and see if our thoughts and our actions display the unity God asks of His church. Let's continue in verse 13 and 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself, our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Paul is showing them that there's no longer Jew and Gentile, but one body, brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. The law expressed in those many ordinances was abolished by the fulfillment through the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles or listen in John 17, 19 to 23. Listen to these couple of verses. Here's what Jesus is praying to the Father. In the, and this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's about to be taken and be crucified. John 17, 19 to 23. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about his disciples, but also for those you and me who will believe in me through the, their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's the answer. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that... The world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Here's Jesus praying to the Father right about before he's going to be crucified. And he's praying for unity. What's the reason for unity? He said it. He said, so that the world may know that God sent Jesus Christ. And so the world may know that God loves his people as he loved Jesus Christ. Disunity stifles that message. Let's pick up in Ephesians 2, verses 17 to 22. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both the access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows in the holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There are no aliens in the household of God. There's no visitors. There's no strangers. We're all fellow citizens. In fact, you must be a citizen to be enter the kingdom of God. And once a child of God, you're a citizen. This is where our true allegiance should be. This world is going to pass away. This country is going to pass away. And when we think of that, it's sad to think about, but we should be rejoicing more that our names are written in heaven. And we got to remember that we're sojourners. We're just passing through. That's a hard thing to think about because we live in this world. We need to make sure that our families, our friends, our neighbors, and even the strangers that we meet know that there is a place where citizenship is forever. And strangers we meet know that they can be forgiven and that the people are one accord. There's no strife, no hostility, but a unification and the glorifying of the one and true God forever and ever. Paul reminds us of our citizenship in Philippians 3, 18, 21. He said, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. This is how Paul is feeling and what God feels about that. Even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their, their end is destruction and their God is their belly. Their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We live in this world. And I know it's not it's difficult not to focus on the the everyday life and, and the difficulties of this world. But God, with God's hope, we can keep our heads in the clouds. We can keep our focus on heaven, our true citizenship. People around the world seek freedom. And they come to this country because the very tenets of our foundation express the ideals of freedom. And they're good ideals. Even though in our founding we didn't fully live up to them. But in Christ... We're truly free. Second Corinthians 3.17 says, the Lord. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And you're all familiar with this one, John 8.32. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Exactly. We have true freedom in Christ, and the captives have been set free. And they've been set free by the spilt blood of Jesus Christ. We have a citizenship in heaven because we have a God who loves us and who makes us free and delivered us. If you're here this morning, and I don't know if there are those that don't know Christ, and you're looking for true liberty, or you're looking for true freedom, you're searching for a home that's everlasting, where love knows no limits, where all your transgressions can be forgiven, where no matter who you are, what your past is, you can come to Jesus this morning. You can pray in your seat if you want, or if you want, during our song, our benediction, you can come up and I'll be happy to pray with you. Maybe you're just a child of God and you just want some prayer. I'll be happy to pray with you as well.
feel free to come up as well. Remember, we're, because of the holidays, there's not going to be any evening service today. Enjoy your time with your family. Enjoy the fruits what our forefathers did and the freedom we have in this country. Enjoy this country, even with its flaws. Celebrate more your eternal citizenship in heaven. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you've made a declaration of dependence.